theyeshiva.net. It's an old question, but it's an important question. Why did Moshe, why did Moses break the tablets? The Torah portion of Kisisa in the book of Exodus tells the story of Moses coming down from the mountain where he spent 40 days studying Torah with the two tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments. And when he comes to the people, he notices and observes that deeply disturbing scene. A golden calf has been created, worshipped, and Moses is deeply, deeply hurt, and the Torah says he throws the tablets, the luchos, and he breaks them. Why? Why did he break them? Why did he smash the tablets? Now, if you have to remember, he wasn't just smashing an expensive item. This was something unparalleled. The Torah says right before, the haluchos, maisa this was the handiwork of God, engraved by God himself. So this was something absolutely unique. It was like a divine gift that's priceless. Even if Moses was upset to smash such a priceless item, why? So there are different interpretations that our sages give for this. One very famous one is brought by Rashi. Rashi says... In Parshas Kisisa, he says that Moses thought to himself, you know, we had not long ago the Passover offering. The Torah says about the Passover offering that kol it should only be eaten by people involved in the Jewish covenant, in Judaism. So he says, this is not this one mitzvah of eating the Passover offering. Here it's the whole Torah. The two tablets, the Ten Commandments contained at least on some level, the entire Torah. And, and the Jewish people have, so to speak, become apostates. They have abandoned their Judaism by creating this golden calf. So how can I give them this Torah? If you can't give them the Passover offering under such circumstances, how can I give them the Torah? That's one way of interpreting it. There's another interpretation that the Medrash brings, and Rashi also quotes it that the tablets represented the marriage contract between God and the Jewish people. And by Moses breaking the tablets, he was like breaking the marriage contract, so there's no proof that they're married. So therefore, the fact that they betrayed their husband is not so bad because they weren't crossing red lines because they weren't married. The proof of the marriage is the luchos, the tablets. That's what Rashi says. But if he breaks the tablets, so the marriage contract is gone. If the marriage contract is gone, so they're like two individuals. They're not married to each other. So therefore, the consequences are not so disturbing and not so devastating because they weren't married to each other. So that's why Moses breaks the tablets to preserve the honor and the future and the dignity and the existence of the Jewish people. They didn't betray God because they weren't, so to speak, married to him. They didn't get the tablets. The tablets were broken. But both of these explanations, although they're very fascinating, in the first, Moses is really protecting the honor of Torah, and the second, he's protecting the integrity and the survival of the Jewish people. Why did he have to break the tablets? He could have hid them somewhere. 
He could have given them back to the Creator. He could have kept them somewhere in a safe place. Why take something that is literally priceless, will never be able to be replicated again? It was a miraculous creation, and just destroy it. I mean, imagine practically, if you bought something, a very, very expensive gift, to give it to somebody, and then the last moment you realize they are completely unworthy of it. There's no way you're going to give them this gift. Or another consideration why you feel that you should not be giving them this gift. Why destroy something that's worth $50,000? Sell it. Keep it. Give it. Return it. You'll figure out what to do. This was not worth $50,000, as I said. It had no worth. It's beyond worth. It's beyond the price. It's priceless. Why does Moses break and destroy the tablets? There's another very fascinating insight that we discover when it comes to the broken tablets, and that is, the Talmud says, the Gemara says in Tractate Baba Basra, page 14, that when they built the sanctuary, the Mishkan, and later the Bet HaMikdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, there was the Aron, the Ark. The Ark was the holiest item in the tabernacle. And inside, it had the tablets, the Luchas. So the Talmud says, Luchas v'shivre Luchas menachem ba'arim. The fragments of the first tablets that were broken were also placed in the Aaron, in the Ark, which means Moses broke the tablets. What happened with all the pieces? Did they just remain strewn in the desert near Mount Sinai? What happened to them? Did somebody collect them and put them in a museum? What happened to them? Later, Moses goes up to the mountain and God forgives the people and tells Moses to carve out two new tablets, and he's going to engrave in them the first original text that was there in the first ones. And then Moshe brought down the second set of tablets that were whole. Comes the Gemara and says that the fragments of the first were collected, and together with the second tablets, both of them were placed in the Aaron, in the Ark. And we learn it from the fact, because it says in Parshish Ekev, Asher Shibarta v'samtam ba'aron, we learn out that even that which you broke, you have to put into the Ark. So not only were the second tablets in the Aron, but also the Shivre Luchas, the fragments of the first ones, were also in the Ark. Now this is a fascinating phenomenon, because we have a principle that Ein Kateger Nasa which means the prosecutor doesn't serve as the lawyer. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wouldn't go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur with golden garments, you know why? Because the gold was a reminder of the golden calf. And on the Day of Atonement, when you want to atone for the Jewish people, you don't bring the prosecutor to defend the people. And the gold is like the prosecutor because it reminds us of the golden calf. This is how careful they were not to bring in prosecution into the defense because you wanted the defense should be wholesome. Here, it wasn't only Yom Kippur. A whole year, including Yom Kippur, in the ark in the holiest place, lay not just gold, which reminds you of the golden calf, lay the actual broken pieces of the tablets, those shards, which not only remind you, they are the embodiment, the residue, that the remnant of that which remains of the Jewish sin. What is going on? So the great Talmudic commentators, the Ramban, the Rajba, the Ritva, these were the great luminaries of Spanish jury during the 12th, 13th, and 14th century. First is the Ramban. They all wrote commentaries on the Talmud, on the Gemara. First is Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, 
Nachmanides, who was the luminary of Spanish Jewry, one of its greatest Talmudists and rabbis and leaders and sages and philosophers and biblical commentators and physicians and debaters. He passed away in 1270. He's known as Nachmanides. His impact on the Jewish world till today through his scholarship and writings and leadership is very profound and felt. He had a student known as the Rajba, 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 Rabbeinu Shlomo Ben Aderes, who was a student of Nachmanides, also a great rabbi, leader, and sage in Spain. He passed away in the year 1313. And he had a student known as the Ritva, Rabbeinu Yomtev Ben Avram Alashvili. Ritva, Rabbeinu Yomtev Ben Avram Alashvili, also from Spain, a student of Reb, of Rabbeinu Shlema Ben Aderes, who passed away around the year 1330. All of them, in their commentaries on the Talmud in this discussion, say, and I quote, The fact that God wants the broken tablets inside the Holy Ark demonstrates that the breaking of these tablets had something very precious for Hashem. There was something very precious for Him. If not, if not, God would not instruct the Jewish people to take these broken tablets and put them in the ark. You don't bring in the prosecution into the space of atonement and defense. Comes the Ramban and the Rajba, the Rajba and the Ritva and say, you have to say that there's something very precious, very good, very positive about the breaking of the tablets. And that's why God wants it in the ark and the Holy of Holies constantly. Every single day of the year, just like he wants the whole tablets there. Which is very strange. Because even if Moses had a good reason to protect the honor of Torah, to protect the Jewish people, they shouldn't be penalized so badly because they were not married, because the contract was broken, the marriage contract was torn before they received it. Even if he had good reason, it certainly reminds you of their worst moment. It certainly reminds you of their gravest of their gravest sin, of one of the greatest catastrophes in Jewish history, of the lowest point of the Jewish people when they fell into a moral abyss only 40 days after the revelation at Sinai, only seven weeks after the exodus of Egypt. This was truly a terrible, terrible moment that these broken pieces, these shards, are reminding us of. So even if he had a good reason, they didn't deserve it, or he wanted to protect them, fine. But they're certainly reminding us and God of this terrible sin. Come the Ramban and the Rajban Ritva say, you have to say that there's something very positive about this. So positive that it like serves as their, as their defense, and it belongs in the Ark, in the Aran. What is more, there are opinions, it's brought in Talmud Yerushalmi and brought by so many of the commentators, that when the Jews would go to war, they would take the broken shards of the first tablets with them, which is even more astounding, because when you go to a war, you certainly need every possible merit you need. You certainly need every possible dosage of energy. So you're taking with you to war these broken tablets, which only demonstrate how low you have fallen. Difficult to understand. So again, our first question is why Moshe had to break them rather than just hide them, 
keep them, return them to their creator, just not give it to the Jewish people, you could have accomplished the same thing. And the second thing is, how do we understand what the Talmud tells us and these great commentators explain that there's something positive about these broken tablets and God wants them in the Holy of Holies, in the holiest place of the world, together with the whole tablets. Not just place to put away somewhere because they are holy shards. There's a fascinating Medrash, Medrash Rabbah, Parshish Kisis, and the Medrash says that Moses, Moshe, was extremely upset and hurt after the broken tablets because he felt like, what a loss. And God said, don't be aggravated. The first tablets only had the Ten Commandments, Darsaris Hadibris. I'm going to give you a second set of tablets, and they're going to have the Ten Commandments, plus they're going to have Halacha, Midrash, and Agadah, which means all of Jewish law and all of Midrash, which represents all of the homiletics of Judaism and all of the mysticism and Hashkafa perspective of Judaism. Agadah. All of this is going to be contained within the second tablets. So therefore, Moses, don't be upset. You're going to get a better deal. <laughs> you're worried that the first luchas you got were lost. Don't worry, because they're lost, you're going to get a second one, second set. Not only will they compensate you for the first, they're going to be superior. If this is the case, then perhaps we can understand why the breaking was good, because this allowed there to be new tablets which had much more. The Gemara says in Meseches Menachos, of Tzadik Tes, Resh Lakish said that sometimes, Bitula Shal Torah, Zau Yisayda. Sometimes nullifying Torah becomes the foundation of Torah. And his proof is that after the breaking of the tablets, it says, Asher Shibarta. God uses the term Asher Shibarta. You have broken them. But the word Asher is superfluous. And the Talmud says, Asher comes from the word Yasher Koichecha. Ishur, like when you confirm something, when you acknowledge something and you accept it, you agree, you endorse it, it's called in Hebrew, la'asher, la'asher et hatavar, I acknowledge it. Or we say when somebody gets an aliyah, we say, yasher koichacha, your energy should be upright and strong and straight and erect, like more power unto you. So God says, asher shibarta, asher means he was ma'asherit. Ishur, Rashi says in... in uh, in, in Gemara Rashi explains this in Masech Shabbos, Daf Pezayin. Ishroi v'shibchei al shvirasan. God confirmed, endorsed, acknowledged, and he praised them for breaking the tablets. So Rish says, why is he praising him? Because sometimes bitula shal Torah, nullifying Torah, becomes the foundation upon which Torah is built. What is the meaning of this? So one way of explaining it is because by breaking the luchas, this became the foundation for the new luchas, for the new tablets. Because if you wouldn't break the first ones, you wouldn't have had the second ones. And the second ones were superior, according to the Medrash, to the first ones. Which explains why God uses the word Asher Shibarta only after he tells them to carve out the new tablets. He doesn't tell it to them right after the breaking of the tablets. 40 days later, after he tells him to make the new tablets, that's when he thanks him for breaking the first ones. And now we would understand the reason, because the advantage in breaking them only comes out when the second ones are introduced, because they're better than the first. So that would explain the beauty in the breaking itself, because this somehow creates a new foundation. But this is also very difficult to understand, and actually astounding. The first tablets that came without sin... They came with innocence, they came with purity, they came after the extraordinary revelation at Sinai. 
these tablets were somehow missing. They were God-made. The second tablets were sculptured by Moses and then God engraved the Ten Commandments into them. The first tablets were completely made by God. Everything. Not just Moses sculptured them and then God, so to speak, stamped them. No. It was an entirely divine creation. So the first tablets were far holier, far superior, far more divine, and yet they were lacking. The Medrash says, don't be upset that you broke them. The second ones are going to be much better. That seems to be a little strange. Actually, not a little strange, very strange. Just because the Jews sin, so they get, they get better tablets? Like, what, what is going on? And why, can't, why couldn't God give that, those extra, extra Torah in the first tablets? And if he could have done it without breaking the first tablets, so then why was Moses calm? How was Moses calm? His, his aggravation is still there. Why they had to go through this? So what do we see from here? That it's the breaking of the first tablets that was essential and necessary to create the second tablets which can have a whole new revelation of Torah that did not exist in the first tablets. And that's why it calmed down and it relaxed and it soothed and comforted and gave some solace to Moses. He was so upset that he broke it and God says, don't worry. It's only because of this that you're getting the second tablet with much more. But one second, why can't you do that with the first? Because they were never broken. There had to be the breaking of the first tablets to create this new phenomenon of the second tablets. But why? It doesn't seem to make sense. So I'm going to share today one perspective which I think is also extremely relevant to our times and extremely relevant to the mission statement that I think is so important for many of us to absorb and I know Drops of Inspiration really focuses on this because it's a message that applies to our lives individually and collectively and it's based on an address, an insight that I had the privilege of hearing in my youth from the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Blessed Memory, Purim, 1985, which was also Parshas Kisisa. There was a fascinating mission in the ethics of the fathers. Pirkei Avos Perik Dalet. Elisha ben Avuya, the one time he's quoted, Elisha ben Avuya says, if you teach Torah to a child, it's, it's like using a fresh piece of paper and writing on a fresh piece of paper with ink. If you teach Torah to an older person, it's like writing on an ayar machuk, on a piece of paper that has been used and erased and used and used again, which means the ink is not so absorbed. That's what he says. Which is a strange Mishnah, because what's the point of the Mishnah? Just to discourage older people from learning Torah? I mean, there are people who haven't had the privilege of learning Torah in their youth. And they only discover Torah when they're older. So what is he trying to say? They don't try, nothing is going to go in. And if his point is to cherish the youth and to make sure that we're teaching Torah to all of our children because they have that ability to absorb it in such a more acute and profound and faster way. So focus on that. Say, when you teach Torah to a child, it's like placing the ink on a fresh piece of paper. It's going to remain there. Why why do we have to bring out the negativity of teaching the Torah to the old person? It just seems to discourage so many people who are older. Rabbi Akiva started to learn Torah when he was 40. 
Elisha ben Avuya was one of his teachers and colleagues, and if he would have told this to him, you know, he might have given up. Like, what's the point? Older people could learn as much as they want, as much as they can. You want to focus on encouraging children to learn and encouraging parents and teachers to invest a lot in the youth, which is extremely important. Besides, what's the novelty of this Mishnah? Do you really need a Mishnah to tell you that when you're young, you absorb information fast and deep? We all know that. We know that you know when you teach languages to young children, they can learn many languages. Try to teach the same languages to adults. It's almost impossible. Children generally, their brains are pliable. They absorb a tremendous amount in a very fast way. Even when we don't see them as absorbing, they're always absorbing. What's the Chiddush? What's the novelty of the Mishnah? The truth is, Elisha ben Avuya was teaching something very, very profound. Not just about age, but about attitude. I could learn as a child, and I could learn as an older person. Older woman or older man. And the difference is the approach. It's not about my age, it's about my approach. Learning Torah as an older person means I come to absorb knowledge with previous paradigms. I'm not ready to emancipate myself from my previous conceptions and way of thought. I bring in everything from my past into the conversation, which on one hand has an advantage, but on the other hand sometimes deprives me from the ability of learning anything new. Because all the information I'm hearing, I'm trying to make it fit in to my old frameworks, to my old ways of seeing things. And all of us have the neural pathways in our brains that have been developed over many decades. And this is how we think about life. And especially if we're suffering from some form of trauma. So all of the new information is being processed and filtered through those restricted pathways. And we don't even have the ability of seeing anything in a really new and fresh way. We become trapped by a prison which is inside of us. So Elisha ben Avuya is encouraging people. He says, learn Torah to a, learn Torah as a child. Even when you're older, remain a child. Let that piece of paper, let that canvas of your brain remain unscathed, untouched, fresh, new. Can I have the ability to actually let go of all my previous paradigms and absorb really new material that can enhance my life and can change my life. And this is especially true when it comes to being a student of life and a student of Torah. We say every morning in davening, three times a day, from the Gemara and Brachas Yudzayin, the end of Shmon Asre, Elekai, God, Nitzar L'Sheni Meira, guard my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceitfully, let my soul be silent to those who curse me. Let my soul be ka'afar. Ka'afar means let my soul be like earth or like dust to everybody. Open my heart in your Torah. What is the connection between the two? The connection is, if I ever really want to learn something new, humility is the prerequisite. There's an expression in old Svarim. It comes from the from this primagodim, Rabbi Yosef Toumim, the Taldus Yaakov Yosef, in Hebrew, called Gay Shota. Arrogance produces folly. An arrogant person is, is automatically a fool. Why? 
Because the greatest enemy to self-discovery and learning is a sense of pompousness, of arrogance, which comes from insecurity, that I know. And even if I know a lot, that knowledge can be my greatest hindrance to real knowledge because I just relegate it. The new knowledge I just relegate to my old filing cabinets. One of the greatest mistakes that scientists, physicists, physicians, doctors, psychologists, therapists, rabbis, of so many different professions, they have studied, they may have studied well, they graduated to some degree, they have a certain amount of information and knowledge, and then they fit everything into those paradigms. And whenever they are hit with new information that may transcend their vessels, they can't deal with it. There's too much resistance, consciously or subconsciously, and therefore they feel compelled to dismiss it. But that's not how you learn. The definition of learning is openness. Let that canvas not be filled with any static, and the greatest static is the static of my ego or the static of my insecurity that does not allow me to be open to real new information that can change my life. So the real foundation for learning Torah, psach libi b'sayrasech, for my heart to be open, to absorb God's Torah, is nafshi ka'afra is that I become completely open. I become completely vulnerable. Vulnerability is the key. Because vulnerability allows me to actually hear something new. I'm not stuck in an old way of thinking about things, which is what an ego does. Ego stands for easing God out. And the ego doesn't necessarily look like a big ego. It could sometimes look like very, very deep insecurity. There's a lot of fear. There's fear that if I challenge, allow myself to be challenged, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to be obliterated. I'm going to be emotionally dead. So I really have to be able to open myself up completely. V'navshik afalakaltiyah. And say, let me start all over again. There's a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara says in Erevin, Talmud Erevin, page 54. The Torah was given in a desert. He says, in Mesim Adam Atzmei Bamidbar Zeh, Shahakol Doshin by Talmudim Eskayim Biyadeh. If somebody can be like a barren desert where everybody steps and nobody owns it, then your learning can really, really be maintained within, within you for eternity. What does this mean? What does this mean? It doesn't mean that to learn you have to be a shmata, you have to be a nebach, you have to be a loser. It's the exact opposite. Real learning is about elevating your posture to absorb infinity. If I am stuck in my old paradigms, if I'm stuck in my old way of thinking, I can never open myself up to real truth. All truth gets filtered through my old traumas, through my old way of seeing things, through my old neural pathways. I don't even realize I'm doing it. I may just be doing it subconsciously. What is Torah? Torah is God's wisdom. The definition of God is that He has no definition. If I come to learn truth through my own definitions, I could never capture the essence of truth, which is definitionless. In Kabbalah, Hashem is always called Ein Saif. Ein Saif means infinity. How does finiteness grasp infinity? How does the I open itself up to infinite truth? It can't. Because by definition, the I is finite. 
The eye has its limits. The eye has its box. The eye has its way of seeing things. So all truth is filtered through those prisms and therefore the eye could never really grasp truth unless the eye has the ability to be able to transcend itself. Unless I can really, really allow myself to let go. To let go of the need to be right. To let go of the need to know. To let go of the need to be in control. Do you know how to do that? To let go of the need to be in control. To let go of the fear that if I let go, I won't be able to exist. To really, really let go of everything. To be beer, open, vulnerable. To strip myself from all my cover-ups. From all my bulletproof vests. From all the mechanisms that obstruct my vision. To really strip myself from all those toxic thoughts and emotions that sit inside of me and force themselves upon me and impose themselves upon me and dictate how I should process information. And again, I'm not necessarily doing this in a premeditated, conscious way. It's just the way I'm programmed. Do I have the courage to be able to go out of my program? And for this, I have to really let go of everything. And I want to tell you, this is not easy. It's not easy for us. Because we always filter all the information through our previous modalities. And those modalities have often been created, meticulously constructed and sculptured over many decades. Many of them perhaps were created as survival skills in order to be able to survive during a difficult childhood or in a difficult family or during different challenges that came our way. So how do I dismiss and how do I say goodbye to those very skills that allowed me to survive? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a very, very heart-wrenching question. How do you say goodbye to skills that allowed you to survive? But today, those very skills are keeping me trapped or they're keeping you trapped. So you don't say goodbye to them. You acknowledge them. You thank them. You appreciate their contribution. And then you say, but now I am an adult and I don't have to live by those surviving survival skills that really are not allowing me to experience life in a deeper way. It's now that we're going to understand what happens when Moshe breaks the tablets, something very, very profound is happening. You see, when the Torah was given, when the Jews stood at Sinai, it was, of course, a moment like no other. We speak about it in the holiday prayers, the time you have chosen us from all the nations, loved us, cherished us, and elevated us from among all the languages. And as the first Gary Rebbe, the Chidusha Harim says, what's Vireimam Tonu Mikol Halashoynes? Elevated us from above all the languages. It means... The elevation was so profound that there's no language that can articulate it or grasp how deep the elevation and the love was. 
When somebody is so elevated, so inspired, so exalted, because of good reason, you cannot expect that level of vulnerability where I need to strip myself from everything I knew about myself, which only comes when there is a sense of pain, when there's a sense of inadequacy, when life is not working for me. When I'm on top of the world, when I feel so content, when I feel so happy, when I feel so loved, when I feel so much love in my life, when I feel so good about me and about the people around me, when life is just one gigantic celebration, one cannot expect that level of vulnerability, that level of humility. I sometimes speak to addicts who have lost everything. They have surrendered to addiction and they have lost everything. They have lost their money, their families, their marriages, their children, their dignity, their self-esteem, their standing in the community. They're left with nothing. They hit rock bottom. And then some of them at that moment are stripped from the last vestige of self. And you know what happens? Some of them, at that moment, they become open to transcendence, what they call in recovery, absolute surrender. Or as America told Japan, unconditional surrender, unconditional surrender. It's just complete surrender. I'm not in control anymore. The first step, I'm not in control. I'm just not in control. But when I am in control, it's very hard for me to feel that I'm not in control. (laughs) It's very hard for me to feel. Somebody asked me the other day about two communities in New York. One community is frightened and paralyzed by corona. They're not just wearing masks and doing all the right things. But they are emotionally on lockdown, not just physically on lockdown. And another community close by also follows the guidelines, but not so traumatized. What's the difference? So I explained to this person, I said, I'll tell you, this first community, they always thought that they controlled the world. And suddenly they realized that they don't control the world. So they're overwhelmed from fear, from dread. Wow, we don't control the world. They don't know what to do with this information. They're frightened. I said, the other community nearby them, they never thought they controlled the world. They always knew God controlled the world pre-corona, during corona, and post-corona. So even during corona, they tell themselves, okay, the same one who controlled the world 5,779 years till corona continues to control the world during corona and will continue post-corona. That person who lost everything can really give up control because there's nothing to control anymore. Everything is broken. But when everything is working, there's so much to control doing a great job. It's hard to be vulnerable. The same is true with so many other areas in life. When everything is working, or at least working more or less, even if I'm honest and there's integrity in me and I want to grow, but that level of vulnerability where my entire eye melts away and ceases to have any ego cannot be expected because my eye is doing well. When I reach a point in life that everything is broken, everything is broken, or at least so much is broken, my expectations are not fulfilled. 
my dreams have crumbled. My trajectory of what my life is going to look like has not worked out. Everything I hoped for, everything I dreamt for, I feel has been taken away from me. What am I left with? I feel like I'm left with nothing. And you know what can happen at that moment? At that moment, I can become a channel for infinity, for the reality that transcends the eye, for the ain't safe. At that moment when my eye has nothing to hold on to, when it's, in, when it's shattered into pieces, when it's broken, at that moment, it can become a channel for everything. Because it's not stuck. It's not compromised. The famous line of the Balshamtiv, every chamber in heaven has a key, but there's a master key that opens up every chamber. A humble heart, that's a brach in the hearts. The Kotzke Rebbe once said, the Yiddish, and then I'll translate. The Holy Kotzke Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, said, Sinishto how do I translate that into English? Let me try. There's nothing as straight as a slanted ladder. Because <laughs> if the ladder is straight up, you can't use it. There's nothing as crooked as the straight face of a con artist. There's nothing as black as the white shrouds with which we dress a corpse. And there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. There's nothing as whole as a humbled heart. Why? Because it's the cracks that allow the light of the divine to come in. It's the cracks that allow infinity to penetrate me. As the Jews are standing at Sinai, they receive the Torah. God speaks to them face to face. There's not an, a centimeter of brokenness for good reason. They're on top of the world, literally, figuratively. For good reason. Not that they were arrogant in, in the simple sense of the word, arrogant and pompous and, and rude and obnoxious. But still, in, in a good way, in a, in, in a holy way, in a sacred way, you can't say they're in a state of where the eye really loses its footing, its grounding. And you know what happens? They made a terrible mistake. They created the golden calf. And you know what Moshe does? Moshe breaks the luchas. He breaks the tablets. You know what happens the moment Moshe breaks the tablets? He doesn't only break the tablets. Each one of their souls, each one of their hearts is now humbled in the deepest way. 
That's why Moshe tells them at the end of his life in Parshas Ekev, he says, Va'ashabrim le'inechem. Ve'etve says, Aluchis b'shteyod, va'ashabrim le'inechem. I grabbed the tablets with both of my hands and I broke them before your eyes. Asks the Abarbanel, Don Yitzchak Abarbanel. Why is it necessary to emphasize the le'inechem before your eyes? And if it was not before your eyes, the point is that I broke them. Who cares if it was in front of your eyes or not in front of your eyes? But the truth is, it's all about le'inechem. When the Jewish people saw Moshe coming down, and taking the luchas, a gift that they got directly from God himself, the creator of the world, who came down and takes them out of Egypt and splits the sea and brings them to Sinai and embraces them in the most profound and intimate way and gives them, gives them his blueprint for life and makes them his people and creates with them an eternal covenant. And then they lost the plot and they surrendered to addiction and they create the golden calf. And Moses that majestic, spiritual, loving figure comes down from the mountain with those tablets. And he sees what's going on. And he throws the tablets down with all the might, with all his might. And he shatters them. What do you think they felt like at that moment? They felt shattered. They felt broken. They felt devastated. They felt that they lost everything. How can they have reached a space? How can they have forfeited such a gift? How can have they abandoned such an opportunity? How could they have been so ungrateful? How could they be so foolish? You know what those feelings do to you? They were so humble at that moment. They couldn't have been more humble at that moment. Ah! Wow, says the Rebbe. You think this was their lowest moment, right? Yes, and let me tell you something else. It was their highest moment. It was their deepest moment. You know why? Because when I am stripped of every level of ego, when I am stripped of every level where I feel I'm in control of my life, I actually become open to the reality that completely transcends any definition of I, any description of I. As long as life is working in the most positive sense, by definition, all truth is filtered through the prism of my identity and therefore I can't be open to infinity. But it was at that moment, in the hearts of the breaking of the Luchas, that Moshe recreated a new people. When he broke those tablets, those people were now recreated. And therefore God says, the second tablets are going to be much greater. You know what they're going to have? They're going to have halacha and medrash and agada. Because where do you see the infinity of Torah? You see it primarily in what we call Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition. Torah Shabbat, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses even though their layers are infinite. But there is a finite structure. There's five books of Moses, 53 portions, a certain amount of words, a certain amount of letters. You don't add a letter, you don't take off a letter. You can capture it. I could learn the whole Chumash and know it. There's always more to know, there's always more to learn, there's always deeper interpretations. But to some degree, I can grasp it, I could know it. When it comes to Torah Shabbat Peh, Torah Shabbat Peh is the interpretation of Torah, the oral tradition of Torah, the depth of Torah, 
the prophet says. It's longer than the size of the earth. And it's broader than the seas, than the oceans. It's really infinite. It's inkates. So it's the oral Tereshabal Peh that represents the deeper and deeper and deeper layers. The commentary of Tereshabal stuff that just goes and goes and it's, it never ends. You could learn the same Pasek, the same Mishnah, the same Gemara, whatever it is that you're learning. You can learn it 50 times and then you learn it again and you'll find something new. Or as the Baal Shem Tev said, Tereshabal Hashem Tamima. The Torah of Hashem is Tamima, it's complete, what makes it complete? He says, even after thousands of years of learning, it looks like it has not been touched. It's not like a birthday cake, you're nibbling at it for 3,000 years, you're going to see some dents in the cake. Here, it looks like it was not touched. But how do you make sense of such a statement? What do you mean it's not touched? Jews have been nibbling and eating and consuming and writing and teaching Torah for thirty more than 3,300 years. The answer is when you're dealing with infinity, you can take and take and take and take and take and it's unnoticeable. You're not depleting any of it because you're dealing with infinity. If you have a million dollars in the bank or you have a billion shekel in the bank, even if I take one shekel, it's already less. And if I take 10 shekel, it's even less. And if I take a thousand shekel, it's less. But theoretically, if you have an infinite amount of shekel in the bank, Somebody can take and take and take and take and they haven't yet touched it. They haven't yet scratched the surface. Torah is ain't safe. If the first luchas would have never been broken, Jews would have not been privy to that dimension of Judaism. They would have been given a certain self-contained wisdom. But because of the breaking of the luchas, they were now open to the infinity of Torah, to the infinity of godliness, to the infinity of Yiddishkeit. That's why Hashem says, Yashir Barta. He thanks Moshe for the breaking itself. That's why Moshe had to break the Luchas. That sense of self would not allow the ultimate endurance of the Jewish people and the fulfillment of our mission. Because even when you're feeling good about yourself in a positive and good way, and it's wonderful and wonderful, what really made them great was that moment of humility that came with the breaking of the luchas. So God says, It's not just the benefits, the other benefits that came from it. The breaking itself was valuable. And that's why Moshe couldn't just put away the tablets. Moshe had to break them. And that's why they were placed into the the ark. The breaking itself has something so powerful it even follows them to war. Because the broken luchas themselves represents the recreation of the Jewish people. And now we could finally understand why God wants both sets of tablets to be in the Ur and to be in the Ark. The whole tablets and the broken tablets. Why? Because these are the two properties that need to accompany every single one of us every day. And these two dimensions must accompany every Jew and every person who's connected to Torah, which is every single Jew. There's the whole luchas, and there's the broken luchas. I have to be able to have a sense of inner wholeness. If I lack self-esteem, if I feel like I'm a broken, shattered person, if I feel hopeless, if I feel like a loser, a nebach, a traumatized victim, I can't function. A person has to be able to have a sense of inner shlemus, of dignity, a sense of self, a healthy sense of self. The Jewish world just said goodbye to Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tursky. 
Rabbi Avram Yeshua Heschel Tversky, and he wrote, I think, 60 books. So my mother-in-law from Pittsburgh once asked him, Rabbi Tversky, Dr. Tversky, how do you write so many books? And he said, Rachel, I really only wrote one book. <laughs> I just say it in different ways. And one of the main themes of his book is that you can't approach life in a healthy way without a sense of self-esteem. You really have to have an inner sense of value. That's why we couldn't stay only with the broken tablets. God told Moshe, you have to create new tablets, the whole tablets. Luchas Shni is the second tablets. And they went into the ark. And the second tablets were unique, just like the first, that the letters were engraved in them. They were stone. They were engraved in them, sapphire stone. It's not like a Sefer Torah. In a Torah scroll, the ink is written onto the parchment, but you can erase it. When you have letters that are engraved in the stone, they become part of the stone. You can't erase them. You can't erase the letters. They're part of the stone. What does this mean? This represents the fact that a Jew needs to become like those luchas. The engraving of those letters into the stone represents the engraving of the Torah into the Jew. In other words, when I learn something, I want to absorb it. I want it to become part of me. I want it to be engraved in me. It shouldn't just be added to me like ink on parchment, but it should become completely unified with me and integrated. And this requires the person to be able to be whole. Because if I feel like I'm a nobody, I can't learn, I can't grow, I can't absorb, I'm in too much pain, I'm trying to compensate for my voids, I can't be in a relationship. If I don't feel that I exist, I can't be in a relationship, I'm always needy, I'm always desperate to numb the pain of feeling so inadequate, of feeling like a loser. A person needs to have an inner sense of wholeness, that's what we talk about during so many classes, and it's hard for many of us. Especially if as a child I have had trauma, or even growing up I had different experiences. Many of us have these deep messages inside of us where we feel that we are misunderstood and sometimes you feel completely alone. You feel abandoned and alone and neglected and scared and frightened. And especially when I'm trying to learn, I must understand. In fact, there's a difference between doing a mitzvah and learning Torah. When I do a mitzvah, the point is doing the mitzvah. When I'm learning Torah, the point is understanding. Not just believing that what the Torah says is true. That's not called learning. Learning means that I really need to get this. And if I don't understand it, I say I don't understand. Yes, I know that the text is right and the text is true. But that's not learning. Learning is not believing that what it says is true. It's understanding it to the best of my ability, really absorbing it, and that's how it becomes part of me. So the first component is the whole luchas. But together with that, in the same ark, in the same aron, you had the shivrei luchas. You had the broken luchas, which is another component that I must have. To have that vulnerability. This is a combination that every aron has to have, every ark. There is an element of wholeness and there's an element of humility. The element of wholeness is what allows me to function, allows me to be happy, it gives me a self-esteem, it gives me a sense of purpose, it allows me to know my boundaries, it allows me to know what is good for me, what is not good for me, and it allows me to really become one with people and one with God. On the other hand, to be able to be really open to Torah, I have to have the broken luchas inside of me constantly. 
I have to have that sense of very, very deep vulnerability that really opens me up to something that's completely transcendent of me. I never get stuck in my own paradigms of self. I never get stuck in what life is supposed to look like. I never get stuck in what I'm supposed to look like. I never got stuck in what my self-image is supposed to be made up of. There's a part of me that's broken to pieces and it's just open. It's completely open. It's never stuck. It's never paralyzed. Those are the second luchas in the Aaron. That's what allows me not just to learn Torah, but to learn God's Torah. In other words, something that is completely beyond me, infinity. How can a person have both? How can you have both? On this, the Gemara says, Both tablets were brought together in the Aaron, in the Ark. You know what was unique about the Aaron? Chazal say in Meseches Yomadav Chavtes, Makim Aaron Einem in Amida. The space of the Aaron, the space of the Ark, had a measurement, and yet it didn't have a measurement. What does this mean? This is the first instance, what we have written 2,000 years ago, of a reality where space and non space coexist. Today, this is common language, especially in quantum mechanics where subatomic particles move in clockwise and counterclockwise simultaneously. If you're familiar with modern physics, Schrodinger's cat is dead and alive. Light is both a particle and a wave. Paradoxes can coexist. The first example we have for this is in our own sources. Talmud Yuma, page 29, about the Ark and the Holy of Holies. On one hand, the Torah says that the Aaron had a measurement. Two and a half cubits the length, one and a half cubits the width, and one and a half cubits the height. An Amma is approximately a foot and a half or two feet, between a foot and a half and two feet. So the length of the Aaron was two and a half Amas. That means almost five feet in length. The width of the Aaron, the width of the, that's the length of the Ark. The width of the Ark was Amavachetzi, a foot and a half, which means close to three feet. And then the height of the ark is also Amavachetzi, close to three feet. So it had exact measurements. Interesting. But here's something fascinating. The measurements were not whole. If you look at the other pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, the Torah will say three Amas, five Amas, ten Amas. By the Oren, it's always a half. Two and a half, one and a half, one and, why a half? Why not a whole? Why not a hole? It's very strange. You look at all the other, you look at the other kalim, generally speaking, take the beams. Ten amas. Those are like ten and a half amas. Ten amas. This was 50 amas. This was 30 amas. This was 40 amas. This was 20 amas. 15 amas. 50, 100. Whole. Aaron is everything in half. Why in halves? Why half? Why chatsi? I hope you understand now why. Right? So Rabbeinu Bechaya and the Balaturim explained this. Because the prerequisite for Torah, the prerequisite to be an ark that contains Torah, is to be a half, not to be a whole. When I'm a whole, I will not be able to be an aron. If you want to be an ark, in other words, an aron that contains God's Torah, I have to be a half. What does it mean? There's an expression in Yiddish. Amalek 
flagen machen von ein Wort zwei und von dem ich erhalben. Chassidim of Yuri used to take one Wort and they turned it into two. And from the eye, the eye, they, they cut it into half, which chatsi means vulnerability, no arrogance. I don't live by fear and insecurity. That's why the aran, the size of the aran is half. So that's number one. But it has a measurement. A measurement in half, but a measurement. Then the Talmud says that if you measure the entire holy of holies from wall to wall, it's like the aran occupies no space. So if you had 10 amas in width, let's say 20 feet in width, right? And you would go till one part of the ark, until the other part of the ark, it would be 20 feet. 20 amas. 10 amas, around 20 feet. As though the aron had no space. So you had a paradox. If you measured the ark, it had space. If you measured the room, it's like the ark didn't occupy space. Which one was it? Says the Gemara, Makaim ha'aron einem in the space of the ark occupied no space. But it had to have space. It had to have measurements. If it didn't have measurements, it wouldn't be an aron. <laughs> it wouldn't be an ark. This is paradox. The paradox is it had space and it didn't occupy space while it occupied space. Now you say this doesn't make sense. If you tell me that it was some supernatural reality and it didn't occupy space, fine. If you tell me it occupied space, fine. This also occupies space. But you tell me it occupied space and simultaneously it didn't take up any space. Now you're playing with my rational mind, right? This is the world of paradox. As the Rajba calls it, this is the world of nimna hanimnoyus. God is not defined by logical equations. So subatomic particles we know today can move this way and they can move in the opposite direction simultaneously. Somebody asked Stephen Hawkins about this, and he said, you start talking to me about quantum mechanics, and I open my drawer to take out my gun, because I can't deal with it. Because the rational mind cannot wrap itself around this. There were some Jewish philosophers who said, God can't create paradoxes. It doesn't make sense. The Rajba and the, the greatest philosophers and Kabbalists said, no, rationality is also a creation. Logic is a creation. Logic is not essential to reality. God has created logic. So if something is, doesn't, doesn't make sense in the world of logic, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means I cannot approach it with my brain. Says the Gemara, you want to have the luchas and the broken luchas coexisting, it has to be in the Aran. <laughs> you have to put it in the Ark. In the Aran, you can have the paradox of being whole and being broken at the same time. Of having an extraordinary sense of a healthy self-esteem and at the same time being completely vulnerable and completely humble. But it's a paradox. Is it about me or is it not about me? Is it about my eye? Is it about this, this the, the assertive, what is it called, self-assertiveness or self-transcendence? Good question. Luchais v'shivrei luchais munachim ba'aren. In the Aren, in the Holy Ark, in the Kaidish HaKadoshim, you have the whole luchas, the second tablets, and you also have the fragments of the first luchas. And they can both exist there. Why? The Aren is that which can occupy space and not occupy space at the same time. Can you be that person? 
On one hand, I occupy space. I have my space, my boundaries, my limits, my sense of self. That's the second luchas. On the other hand, I have no space. I'm a channel for divine infinity, which cannot limit itself into space. Because in the Holy of Holies, in the Aran, this is where Hashem's essence was revealed. And Hashem is not defined by space, but He's also not defined by non-space. We say, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Up, up, down, down, right, left, and... You remember the song? Hashem is in space, but He's beyond space. Hashem transcends space. He created space. He created matter, created time, created logic, but he's also in space. In other words, God is not defined by any definition, not even the definition of God, not even the definition of being infinite. So therefore, in the Holy of Holies, where Hashem's essence is manifested, the space of the Aaron has a space and it doesn't occupy any space simultaneously. Every piece of furniture in the Mishkan is a reflection of something in the soul. There is something in your soul called the Aaron, the Ark. It says in Svarim, the Rav and Ezra, the Ramah, explains that every piece in the Mishkan is a replica of something in the human heart. What is the Aaron in your heart? This is called Yechidah Shabbenefesh. Yechidah Shabbenefesh means the core of your soul, which is the Pnimius, the Pnimius Halev, the most inner core of your heart. That's where the Luchais of Hashem lay. This is called Yechidah Shabbenefesh, the part of you that is completely one with the Divine. We say in the Hashanahs of Sukkot, we speak about the Jewish soul, we say, She is one, representing your unity, completely one with the oneness of God. In that space, in my ark, these two opposites not only live together, but they live as one. They become fused. The luchais, v'shivrei luchais monachem ba'aren. The whole luchas and the broken luchas lay together in the Aaron. At the same time, I occupy space and I don't occupy space. At the same time, I have a sense of very, very deep inner wholeness. And at the same time, I have a sense of very, very deep inner humility opened to divine infinity. The last year has certainly challenged all of us, in one way or another, but it's challenged all of us. And I think we can summarize it in these words. Many of our luchas have been broken. Many of the things we relied on, things that seemed predictable, inevitable, were taken away. Many precious things in life started to shake Our world crumbled. Many people's homes crumbled. Many people became aware of realities they were completely unaware of. So many of our luchas broke. And when your luchas break, don't despair. Sad, you can cry. You can be shaken up. You should be shaken up. But it's from that brokenness that you can discover a whole new reality and a whole new sense of purpose, and a whole new sense of self. I know some of you have been through a very, very difficult year. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have seen, have seen pain in such a profound way. And there's no easy answers, 
and not even complicated answers to so many of the questions. But what we learn from this is that when Moshe breaks the luchas, he actually opens all of us up to something completely new. When I feel that my life is not what I planned it to be, and I can't get a grip on that sense of I, this is a moment to steer into that place within within me, to be able to gaze into that place, not to be afraid of my brokenness, but realize that it can become the foundation of a new reality. In the words of Rish Lakish, Menachas 99. And ultimately, I can build an aron, an ark, that will contain both luchas. The second luchas that are whole, and the shivri luchas, and the broken tablets. And both of them will always be part of my life. They'll be part of my life that is very, very whole. I have to always hold on to an inner wholeness that nobody can ever take away. And that very part of my life must also be able to hold on to an inner brokenness that really allows me to see infinity. Thank you for listening. Let's take some questions. Okay, that's not, that's not such a complicated question. I give every Tuesday morning, 9.45 New York time, a shear, and you can watch it on a website called theyeshiva.net. That's T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A, the yeshiva, T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot net, which is N-E-T. That's every Tuesday morning, 9.45, a woman's class, Eastern Time, the yeshiva, Net. You can also watch it live on YouTube. You can put in my name, YY Jacobson, and uh, Tuesday morning, and you will see the class. Again, it's on theyeshiva.net. Let's go to the next question. What did you say when the Pesach, about the carbon Pesach, I said that Rashi explains why did Moshe break the tablets, because he said that when it came to eating the Passover offering, the Torah says in Parshas Bai, Exodus 12, Kol ben bai. a Jew who's an apostate to abandon Judaism should not eat the Passover offering. So Moshe Rabbeinu thought, if one mitzvah they can't partake on the Passover offering, certainly I can't give them the whole Torah when they created this idol. That's what, that's what I said at the beginning of the class. Next question. Yeah, go ahead. Let me just read one question and then I'm going to go to live. You spoke about two groups in New York. One group is frightened, the other group is more positive. Is it because of the vaccine, maybe? <laughs> now, this is before the vaccine. Both groups, both groups suffered. They're not, they're not naive. They live in close proximity to each other. But one is just overwhelmed from fear. Overwhelmed. It's like the world is coming to an end. The other one also suffered, and they're also cautious, but they're much more relaxed. So somebody asked me to explain the difference. So I said, This is what I think. <laughs> the first group, they thought they always controlled the world. They're very wealthy, they're very affluent. 
and they always thought they controlled the world, so they're going crazy. <laughs> and the other group, they never thought they controlled the world. They're fine. They're fine with their vulnerabilities. I don't know. I thought that was a good insight. Just my own theory. You quoted the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I did not quite understand what exactly you were quoting from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Basically, the explanation we gave today in the Shear, I had the privilege of hearing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Purim 1985, published in his Likutei Sichas, volume 26, Parshas Kisisa. I developed it according to my understanding, but the basic ideas is what I had the privilege of hearing from the Rebbe. Great question, great question. Everything you spoke about is very comforting when it comes to my own broken tablets, but how do I respond to somebody else's broken tablets? And I think the most important response is empathy. Just really making a person feel that, I can, that I'm here with you. I don't have the answers, but I can hold your hands. I can hug you virtually or literally. I can embrace you. And I'm here with you. I can cry with you. I can laugh with you. I can reflect with you. That ability for a person in their brokenness not to feel alone to know that somebody cares for them, somebody believes in them, somebody's here with them, somebody's thinking about them, somebody's praying for them, is is very, very powerful. So I cannot really give somebody else an answer about their brokenness. I usually can't even give myself all the answers about my brokenness, certainly not somebody else. But I can hold your hand, I can hold your heart, I can create a space that contains it. Or to put it differently, I can become an arayn in which you can place your broken tablets. Can you and I be that ark for people? God says, don't take the broken shards of the tablets and cast them away. Put them in the ark, in the Holy of Holies. Can you and I become an arayn, an ark, that could contain the fragments of people's lives? That's what I can do. I can create an ark and say, here, I'm going to hold on to them. In order to do that to others, you have to be able to know how to do that to yourself and for yourself. Yes. Go. Um, you like that, huh? You like that, huh? Amazing. I knew I had a feeling going to say there's nothing whole like a broken heart. I was going to say... The said, the Kutzke Rebbe said, so I read many years ago, I listen to young people. What you say about not being stuck in our assumptions resonates for me. How can we rescue young people from their disappointment in rabbis who teach them without hearing or acknowledging their questions? They're walking away from belief in God because they don't believe he's relevant. Judaism is completely irrelevant. How do we show them that Torah is alive and thriving and accepts them and that Torah accepts that there is room for quantum physics and Torah to exist in the same world? Are there websites or books you would recommend how can young people understand this? Listen, I think each and every one of us today needs to be an ambassador. There are always those people that you can touch and that I can touch and I can reach. 
you have neighbors, you have relatives, you have nephews, you have grandchildren, you have classmates' children, your friends' children, people in your community, each and every one of us, I think today lives, we live in a time where we have to take responsibility. There are 10, 5, 20, 30 young souls that you can touch and I can touch by making them feel their dignity and making them feel comfortable in their own skin and comfortable to ask their questions and teaching them this. I have an Amuna series. It's called the Amuna series that you could perhaps send them a link to. It's on the website that I mentioned before, theyeshiva.net. You could type in Amuna series and it'll come up, theyeshiva.net. You go there and you do search. And over there I try to show that Yiddishkeit is not afraid of quantum mechanics or physics or science or biology or mathematics or engineering or astrophysics or psychology or cosmology or philosophy. On the contrary, Torah is the divine blueprint that ultimately embraces and gives us depth in every other branch of wisdom and every other area of life. The most important thing, though, is not just the intellectual information, but the emotional connection. Children need to feel that they belong. They need to feel attached. They need to feel deeply connected. And they need to be able to be nurtured on that level. They have to know that somebody cares for them, that somebody understands them, and that Yiddishkeit is relevant to their lives. If they see a rabbi as just you know, living in a different planet, they can't connect. So they may respect him, but it's very hard to impact them in a deep way. So that's so, so important to be able to have them feel that connection. So many deep truths in one class. It resonates on so many levels. A little information is more dangerous than no information. Whenever I teach adults, I really experience this. I challenge myself and others to let go of everything they think they know about the subject and come with a blank sheet that you described. In a more basic way, I learned in design school that ideas that come to us are not true creativity. To be truly creative, you have to let go of every idea you have and move beyond to a space of no ideas. Only in that space can true creativity grow. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. In other words, real creativity is not in the ideas that just come into you. It's letting go of every idea that you have and moving to a space of no ideas. We call that in Hasidus and Kabbalah, that's called Ayin. Ayin means nothingness, but it really means no thingness. In other words, we're not stuck in the thingness of something. We don't define it as a thing. We align it with infinity, with Ein Saif. I thoroughly enjoyed your share. I want you to know that I'm listening from Cape Town, South Africa. Wonderful. Thank you, Karen. Is it really possible to be open and vulnerable like you described at all times? <laughs> That's a great question. It's hard to be open and vulnerable at all times because we sometimes go like this, you know. <laughs> we, we close up, we get angry, we get nervous. We get scared, we feel abandoned, we feel alone, we feel traumatized. So it's hard. But I think we have to work on ourselves every morning. 
when we daven, when we learn, when we meditate, to anchor ourselves in that space that will allow us during the day to both be wholesome and vulnerable at the same time. I think this is, this is the constant work. The Aaron was always there in the Holy of Holies, and when we have the courage to go into that place inside of ourselves, then I think we can really, uh, we can really, you know, live in both spaces simultaneously. We can live in the space where there is profound sense of wholeness and what you call self-confidence, but we can also live in a space of deep, deep vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. I said, I said that we have no definition of Hashem. We have no definition. The only definition we have is that we have no definition. <laughs> the only definition we have for Hashem is that we cannot, we cannot define Him. In other words, He's infinite, ain't so. If there's no way of, you, you can't put Hashem in a box, and therefore Torah also can be put in a box. Hashem is contained in the world, but also transcends the world. So we, we want to always open ourselves up, and yet we are in a box. I have my space, you have your space, we have our paradigms, but we always want to open ourselves up to more. I'll, I'll explain, let me ask another question and I'll combine them. Somebody says, you, you're describing the broken tablets and the new set, of tablets, and they require a delicate balance between the two so that arrogance doesn't take us over and total despair doesn't take us over. Is this the delicate balance you're describing? It's part of the delicate balance, yes. We, we need a good sense of self-esteem. It's very, very important. And you need a very good sense of humility. And the point is that the two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, what we're learning is that when you go into your own Kaidash HaKadoshim, they merge into one. Because my self-esteem is not coming from my pompousness. My self-esteem is coming from the fact that I am a chelik alaykamimal, that I'm part of Hashem's infinity. And therefore, my sense of self-esteem is right there with my humility. The two are never contradictory. They could seem like contradictory. Are you broken or are you whole? But in that real space of Yechidah Shabbenefesh, of Kodesh HaKadoshim, my wholeness and my humility are really fused together. So you ask, how does one integrate these two ideas in their davening? You want to daven for something or somebody, but yet you also need to hold on to the knowledge that Hashem is doing it all and everything is perfect. Is this part of the balance? How does this apply to tefillah? I think it's, yes, I think it's a very, very practical way of illustrating this delicate balance because, yes, Hashem does it. Hashem is in control. Hashem created this reality, and yet the same God wants me to daven. It says, He wants me to daven. And that davening is part of my partnership with God, and my davening has power, and my davening accomplishes things. And God says, I created the situation, but I want you to daven. And by davening, I can actually change myself and change reality. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you, the drops of inspiration. Thank you to all of you who have joined us here today. And tonight, depends where you are in the world, 
for this very special gathering of learning. I bless you all to have bracha and hatzlacha adbli dai, tremendous nachas from your children and all your loved ones, good health, happiness, prosperity, and may all of us be able to go into our own inner holy of holies, anchor ourselves in our own aron, in our own ark, and find there the container for our wholeness and our brokenness simultaneously. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.